I want to read Psalm chapter 16, verses 9 through 11. It says this, Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the grave, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. Now listen to verse 11. You make known to me the path of life, and you will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Lord, I just thank you that every person that walked in here today believing that 2019 is going to be the start of something new, that that belief is founded and rested in you, knowing that you make all things new, and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore, and you will not let those who believe and put their faith and trust in you be given to the realm of the dead, but you will lift them up in due time, and you will gird us up and surround us with your love, that 2019 will be better than 2018, for we are people of destiny, we are people of purpose, and that, Lord, you have called us to something greater, and we believe that with all that we are, with our thoughts, with our bodies, with our spirits, everything that we are, Lord, it will be, we will praise you, and we give you the honor, the glory for that. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Amen. You can be seated. I honestly believe in my heart of hearts that this series, I believe, is going to transform you if you let it. I know that when I go into a new year, I look for God to do something different in my life, right? I look back at 2018 and I say, okay, I've learned some things. Hopefully I'm smarter. Hopefully I've understood some things a little bit better, not only about myself, but about my family and so on. And so I go into 2019 expecting things to be different and not be the same. Well, the problem with that is that oftentimes in doing that, we go into the next year going, "Woo, we're going to go. But rarely do we stop and do we ever look internally at ourselves. We probably don't. In fact, there was a very famous performer by the name of Michael Jackson. How many of you have ever heard of that name before? Let me see if you, you've heard of my. I didn't say you enjoy his music or anything. I just said, okay, right? And it was interesting because in one of his biographies, it says that he was most himself when he was, when he was someone other than himself. He was most himself when he could go out and perform and be in the spotlight and not have to really stop and look in the mirror. That's what, that's what this writer says. He says that he grew up in a very strict household with a father who was overly strict and overly demanding and iron-fisted, and his mother was extremely quiet. And... Most people say that his last album that was really artistically any good was the album Dangerous. That from there on, it was just kind of flat in his, in his music. And the, the writer of the biography says, to carry on would have required Michael to turn inward, something Jackson was afraid to do. And then he makes this statement. Michael Jackson died a long time ago, and it's taken years for anyone to notice. I wonder how many of us 
live the facade. Everything's good. Everything's out there. But inside our identity, there's a huge crisis looming. There's a huge crisis ready to collapse. I wonder how many of us died years ago and we just keep putting up the front, but inside we struggle with depression, with anger, with rage. Maybe we struggle with something that happened in our childhood. Maybe we struggle with something that happened on the job a year ago or six months ago and we struggle with it, but we don't really want to talk about it. Well, my hope and my prayer for you during this series is that you would look inward. Because what we're going to do is we're going to look at what God says about you, what God says about me. How does God see you? That's what we're focusing on. And I want you for the next several weeks to examine how does God see you? How does God look at you? Not how you see yourself, but how does God see you? I think a lot of times we revel in in those that are famous and those that are in Hollywood and we, athletes and we're like, oh man, and it's so cool. And we, we revel in that, in, the, in kind of the rich and famous, we watch other people. Why? Well, maybe, maybe it's because we're amazed by it. Maybe it's because we wish we were that. Maybe we look at it and <laughs> secretly on the inside, if, if, if I can show you a slight part of the dark side of Tyson, I am happily amused when they fall on hard times. It's like, ha, see? Your life, is, your life isn't all peaches and cream either, right? We, we have this, and I'm not asking you to show your hands, but I think all of us have this sinister side to us where we kind of enjoy it when somebody famous struggles. But Why? Is it because inherently we want other people to struggle because we struggle ourselves? And we all know that's not really healthy, and we would never want to admit that, but there is that side of us. I think sometimes we look at them because, man, I wonder wonder if I could be somebody else. I wonder if I could just be like them. When all of the while we never realize the gift of us. We never realize the gift that God has placed inside of us for the community that we live in, for the family he's given us. You have natural, inborn, innate gifts that God has placed in you, designed for your family, designed for your children, designed for your wife, designed for those around you. But I think a lot of times we think it would be just nice to get a fresh start. Just let me start over. Let me just get that fresh start. Well, in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 2, it says this. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. He says, for those that have found Christ, there's a new law at work. For those that are living underneath their old lifestyle, there's another set of laws. And he really boils down all of creation, all of humanity, to two laws. Paul does. When he writes to the church at Rome, he says there's two laws at work. There's the law of spirit of life, and there's a law of sin and death. That's it. There's there's laws of sin and death, and there's laws of the spirit of life. There's two rules. 
at work in humanity. Sin and death, spirit and life. You take your pick. You decide which laws you're going to live under. And he says that when we come to Christ, we switch from one to the other. Our natural origin is sin and death, but with Christ, we have a new origin. And I'll speak to that in a minute. How many of you have rules in your house? Let me see your hands. Let me see your hands if you have rules, right? Now, keep your hands up if your kids roll their eyes at your rules. Yeah, some of you are like, do they? Yeah, they do, right? They roll their eyes like, oh. In fact, I was talking with a band before church off stage here, and they were joking uh, about one of my sons saying they can never get him to laugh. And one of them says, well, when I say his name a certain way, he kind of smirks. I said, well, that's a laugh for him. I said, but when I say his name, I get no response. I usually, at best, I get an eye roll. That's about, you know, that's about what I get when I say his name. But there are rules. We have rules in our house. Now, I'm going to share one of those rules with you. And um, you can laugh. That's okay. Or you can be like, oh, not in my house. That's fine. That's your house. I'm talking about my house, not your house. All right? You don't have to take this rule and apply it to your house. Okay, you're going to think we're OCD with this. But we have a rule in the priest house. We don't wear our shoes in the house. And we know if you've got to run back into the house to grab something real quick, you take your shoes off, go get it. You don't wear your shoes in the priest house. Now, if you come over, don't feel that you have to. We're not like, you know, <laughs> we're not like shoe Nazis or anything, right? Take your shoes off. But we just don't wear our shoes in the house. And I know that when my kids go to, over to other people's house, they have a conflict. Can I wear my shoes in here? Can I wear my shoes or not wear my shoes? Can I wear my shoes or not wear my shoes? And, uh, right? and there's this internal conflict. Now, if something were to happen to Lynn and I, and we were not around anymore, and let's say another couple adopts our sons, and they go to that house, there's new rules, right? And maybe in that house they can wear their shoes, and then our kids would be like, Yes! I don't take my shoes off. I can just run around the house with my shoes on. New house, new set of parents, new rules. This is essentially what Paul is telling the church at Rome. Sin and death, spirit and life. You used to belong to this house, but now you belong to this house. Right? So when you... Like if a child is adopted, say, from an orphanage and they, move, they get a new family, new set of rules on what was at the orphanage. This is what Paul is saying. He says there's a new set of rules now. You have a new identity now. You are a new you now. So that leads me to, over the next several weeks, we're going to have a total of 12 confessions. That we're going we're gonna to confess, we're going to believe they are things that the Bible says that you are in Christ. And so that brings me to confession number one. If you're a Christian, confession number one. I am fully forgiven and free from all shame and condemnation. I am fully forgiven and free from all shame and condemnation. If God doesn't condemn you and God doesn't shame you, then who are you to shame and condemn yourself? Do you have more power than God? Some of you had to think about that for a minute. No. If God's not condemning you, God's not shaming you, why are we doing it to ourselves? It's a new set of rules now. So everybody repeat after me. I am fully forgiven and free from all shame and condemnation. That's you. 
Now, whether you initially accept that or not, some of us are going to have to get that ingrained in us because we still feel shame. We still feel condemned about things that we do, things we say, the way we are. But you understand that if you've accepted Christ, you're living under new rules. New rules. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. In him we have redemption. Now there's a Christian churchy term. Now the word itself in the Greek is a compound word and it it means to pardon or to let someone go as if the offense never happened. It's as if it never happened. You're not guilty of it. God's not going to hold it over your head. You will hold it over your head much longer than God will hold it over your head. Right? But the root of that compound word literally means to separate something from its origin. To take it from its origin and then totally, completely separate it so that it can never go back to its origin. Think about that for a minute. You are redeemed. If you've accepted Christ, you are redeemed from the origin of your sin, completely separated. It's no different than when mama bird goes to baby bird out of the nest. Right? Some of you up here on these front few rows are about to experience mama bird. Right? As you get ready to graduate this spring. Out of the nest. You are separated from me. Go do your own thing. And I got two boys that would love for me to say that to them at their age in life. But I promise you in 20 years, they'll be like, man, mom and dad was so smart. Isn't it amazing how smart mom and dad get after you get out of the house? It's like they suddenly became Einsteins. Well, this is what the origin of the word redemption means. It means to take something and completely separate it from its place of origin. The Bible says that we are all born into sin. It is our origin to fight against the ways of God. It's in our origin. And the Bible says that when we are redeemed, we are separated from that origin. That was your amen moment. You are separated from that. Now, that doesn't mean you're not going to have to fight against habits that you've created while you were in that mess and trying to fight against God and live your life that way. You've created habits in that house that will carry over with you to this house. They will, they will continue to exist, you're going to have to fight them, but now you have the power of God and a spirit of life on the inside to help you fight that. First Peter chapter 1, verse 14. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. As obedient children. See, in one house you weren't necessarily obedient. You were living according to that law, doing what you wanted the way you wanted. But your identity has changed. And you have been adopted as sons into the children, sons and daughters into the family of God, and your identity has changed. In 1910, there was a lady that had moved to Chicago. And in 1910, it was a horrendous act to be pregnant out of wedlock. Um, but she got pregnant out of wedlock. She began to get called all kinds of names. She lived in Chicago, and she had to move from where she was because she got pregnant out of wedlock. She was called all sorts of names that I will not repeat up here on stage because we're in church. And the father or the boyfriend that got her pregnant, 
he murdered someone in a fit of rage, literally murdered another human being, took their life. Cops knocked on the door, come in, they arrest him, take him to jail. He, why? Because she turned him in. And he swears on his grave as they're hauling him away that when he gets out, he will come back and not only murder her, but murder his son as well for what she had done. Well, in fear, and justifiably so, she flees Chicago. And she moves to a city in Indiana. And, she, and in that fleeing, she, she is pregnant. She moves, single mom. It's 1911. She has the baby. The boy grows up with no dad. He grows up learning to play the violin and panhandle on the streets in the 1920s. Panhandling, playing his violin on the streets to earn money for his mom. His mom is trying to find a job. It's difficult. All the while living in fear that when he gets out of prison, he's going to hunt them down. Well, as the story would go, she finds a man, but she finds a God-fearing, Bible-believing, church-attending man who has a relationship with Jesus Christ. And he shows her the love that Jesus shows all of us and says, I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've done. I don't care that this isn't my son. Here's what I'm going to do. Not only am I going to marry you and so your name changes, I will adopt him and I will completely change his name so that when this man gets out of prison, he cannot find you. And I will completely change your name. Well, the man gets out of prison and actually ends up dying of, uh, of a heart attack or some sort of, sort, some sort of sudden death natural cause. The man in prison who was the murderer is my great-grandfather. The boy who was adopted and had his name changed was my grandpa, who moved to Anderson from Chicago. And his name was changed, and his old life was done away with, and his new life and new name changed. New identity. New everything. So that he now grew up with the love in the love of Christ, and though he didn't fully understand everything because he went a large portion of his life with no father, he understood that this man loved him and cared for him. And that's the way it is for you and I. You see, Jesus adopts us, and he says, no, 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 no. Your past will not come back to haunt you, new life, new identity. I will move you, maybe not physically, but I will move you emotionally and mentally to a new place so that whatever your old life does and however your old life hunts you down, you're new because you are radically and crazy saved and redeemed from that. You, you are not your own. You, you are changed. You, new name, new person, old habits, Maybe. But you are changed. Your identity is different. You are forgiven and free. Romans chapter 8, 16 through 17. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs 
with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now what does that do to your identity? Well, have you ever gone somewhere where your family's reputation precedes you? My father-in-law is like this. I cannot go anywhere with my father-in-law without meeting somebody that he knows. And then it's always, oh, you're Paul's son-in-law. I'm not Tyson. I'm Paul's son-in-law. Do you know people like that? Some of you are like that. Your reputation precedes you. Right? And so because they like Paul, they immediately like me. Now, they don't know me, so the joke's on them, right? But... They automatically associate that. The same is true spiritually. Your father has adopted you. You are now family. And your father's reputation precedes you in the spiritual world. So now you are a child of God. Now think about what that means. If the heavenly father is your father, what's that mean for your faith? Well, that brings us to confession number two, and this is the, and we'll just do two confessions today, but I act in audacious faith to change the world of my generation. I have been removed from my origin so that I can live under these rules of spirit and life because everybody else in this world is living under sin and death. I am life, and my father's reputation goes before me, and he's working through me, in me, and around me. So if that's the case, I can do some pretty audacious things in the face of death. That's you. I act in audacious faith to change the world of my generation. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you were born for such a time as this to change the world in your generation, to change the people around you that you work with, to change the community that you live in, to change the county, the state, and the country, and the world that you live in? Do you believe that's you, or are you too depressed and too down on yourself to be able to make a difference? That's a tough question. Now, I'm not saying every day you're like that. We all certainly have our moments. But I think that we need to begin to act in audacious faith to say, I'm going to make a difference. I'm going to change because my heavenly father loves me and he's looking after me and he's with me and he has brought me from there to here. I need to act in audacious faith to change the world in my generation. Repeat this after me. I act in audacious faith to change the world in my generation. You weren't born 150 years ago. You're not born 150 years into the future. You were born now for a purpose now. You have 80 years or less or more to figure that out and begin to follow and do what God has called you to do. Let me tell you about somebody who acted in audacious faith to change the world in their generation. There's a man that took over after Moses. His name was Joshua. And they come to a point where they're marching through and they're, they're taking Canaan, they're taking the land, and they're warring and fighting and they're, they're doing everything that they know to do. Well, God makes them a promise. God says that you will eliminate these people and take their land. Well, Joshua's human. What does Joshua do? Well, he looks with his natural eyes and says, 
God, look, I know you have all power. I'm limited. This is kind of crazy. But if you tell me that again, I'll go ahead and I'll do it because I know it's you. And God's God say, go do it. You're going to take them out. And God says, oh, by the way, if you need help, I'll just cause the sun to completely stand still for a full 24 hours. And Joshua was like, okay, (laughs) that's kind of odd. And so then we get to the point in the battle where Joshua is realizing the sun is starting to set. And they haven't won. God, you promised me the victory. God, I've been fighting this depression. God, I've been fighting this anger. God, I've been fighting this addiction. God, I've been fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting. And I'm not getting victory in this. So what does Joshua do? He goes back to the promise of God. He says, God, you promised me victory. And look, at, look with me in Joshua chapter 10, verses 12 through 14. O son... Stand still over Gibeon, O moon, over the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, till the nation avenged itself on its enemies. As it is written in the book of Deshar, the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There has never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a man. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. And I'm going to tell you something. As a father, I fight for my kids. And if God is your heavenly father and Jesus is your spiritual brother, he's going to fight for you. Now, did God just come down and physically fight for the Israelites and Joshua? No, they still had to fight. They still had their part to do. Were there Israelite men that died in that battle? Yes. But Joshua said, God, you promised me victory today. Son, you got to stop. He acted in audacious faith because he knew who he was spiritually. He knew who his dad was spiritually. And he says, if you promise me victory over this, then I need something done. And God, boom, does it. How many of us realize that our relationship with God and the love that God has for us is insurmountable by any means, by any measure, That's you. And if that's you, then we need to begin to act in audacious faith to change the world in our generation to say, this will not be tolerated. This is not acceptable. We're going to bring people to Jesus and we're going to see people enter into a loving relationship with Jesus Christ. I will not settle for my friends dying and not making it to heaven. I will not settle for my friends being addicted. And though they won't let me help them and though they won't come to church, I have this stealth weapon and it's called prayer. And I will keep praying until the day comes that they give their life to Christ. That's what it's about. That's audacious faith. To say, I'm going to change my world and my generation. Teachers, how many students go through your doors that you can impact and change? How many employees are around you? How many people are waiting in line at checkout? Yesterday at Meyer, so many people. All with an opportunity to share Jesus. You know, my dad was in uh, a couple days ago, my dad was in a six-car pileup on Interstate 71 around Louisville. And uh, he's fine. Everything's fine. But, you know, his car needs some work. But the guy who rear-ended him, um, his truck is totaled. His truck is totaled. If you want to know what kind of truck it is, you know, like if you're a Ford, Chevy, Dodge, Toyota person, hit me afterwards, I'll tell you which truck it was, what kind of truck it was. But 
So my dad's driving his car, gets rear-ended. The police show up in the six-car pilot. They shut down the interstate, and the police officer comes up, and the guy who hit him comes up. And they want to know why dad, within about three inches of the car in front of him, never made contact with the car in front of him. How come you didn't hit the guy? Everybody else got hit. Everybody else rear-ended. You didn't. My dad says, well, I know this guy that you probably don't know. Opportunity to share Jesus. And he shared Jesus in the six-car pileup with the police officer and the guy that hit him. He says, well, I know a guy that watches over me that you probably don't know. And he shares Jesus with them. It's all about opportunity, saying, I have faith that I'm going to make a change in my world and in my generation I'm going to be a difference maker. And if my God can make the sun stand still, then my God can stop my car three inches from the car in front of me. And my God can watch over me and protect me. And I can make a difference no matter where I'm at. No matter where I'm at. Your vision should never be limited by who you are or what you think you can do. Your vision is based on who and what God is. Your vision is not based on you. Your vision is based on God. And if God decides in your life he needs to make the sun stand still, he'll make it stand still. Your job is to keep fighting and to keep pushing. And if you're walking through hell, you got to keep walking. Keep going. Keep pushing. Keep getting through it. I love what A.W. Tozer said in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. A.W. Tozer says this. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Were we able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes into your mind when you think about God, we might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. What you think about God will predict your spiritual future. If you believe that God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is strong enough to break whatever it is that you're struggling with, you'll get through it. If your view of God is that he's an old miser ready to beat you over the head and you better straighten up and do everything the Bible says to do, it's going to be a tough life because you're constantly trying to measure up. But if you believe God's a loving father who wants to put his arms around you and say, hey, we're going to get through this, and you allow yourself to experience unconditional eternal love and allow yourself to be vulnerable, You'll receive that love, and life will look a lot different. You'll believe the promises of God. You'll accept what the scriptures say. Your life will be different. Your audacious faith is founded on what you believe about God and what he's capable of. It is this belief that will directly determine your legacy of faith and your impact on the world for the glory of God. It is your belief about God that will impact your legacy of faith and your impact in our world. Listen to this, Psalm 62, 11 and 12. One thing God has spoken, and two things have I heard that you, O God, you are strong, and that you, O Lord, are loving. Did you catch that? Your father is crazy strong and very loving. He's not waiting to jerk you around by the collar and go, what's wrong with you? He's not waiting to browbeat you. He's not waiting to do that. He's waiting to say, hey, come on. 
Let's work through this together. I'll make the sun stand still if I have to. You have to keep fighting. I'll do my part. You do your part. Let's work together. Let's make a difference. Do you believe that your God is crazy strong and very loving? Because if you do, you will act in audacious faith to say, there's nothing that can stop me if God told me to move forward and to conquer my enemy. Nothing. In 2019, there's nothing that will stop you if you truly believe your God, your Father is crazy, crazy strong and very loving. The survival of your audacity depends on your knowing deep down that your God is good. The deeper down that you know your God is good, the greater your audacity to do things for him and with him. Until you believe God is with you and for you, fear and hesitation will characterize your life. Until you believe God is with you and for you, fear and hesitation will characterize your life. How many times has somebody come up and give an idea, and it just registers with your spirit? You're like, yeah, I should do that. And all of a sudden, in your brain, you say, well, that won't work because of this and this, and I got this to do, and I got that, and I got that. But yet, deep down, what they said registers. But your brain starts coming up with excuses. Then your belief in the, in the crazy strong and crazy loving God isn't deep enough in you yet. Grow deeper. Get deeper. God wants to work miracles in you even when it seems impossible. John 14, 12 says this. It's not going to be on the screen. I just want you to listen. Listen to this. Jesus says, very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Wow. Jesus said, all the stuff you read about me doing, you can do it too. You do it too. Uh-oh. Whoa. While none of us would ever consider ourselves to be equal with Jesus, Jesus just brought us up to his level. The only reason it doesn't happen is because we don't have enough faith in our Father. We don't believe enough because we're still tied to the what-ifs and the doubts and the fears because the habits from the life of sin and death still plague us with a life of spirit, right? Sin and death, spirit and life, and that still plagues us. Do you truly believe that Moses, David, Paul, Solomon, Joan of Arc, George Washington, Billy Graham, Martin Luther King Jr., do you believe that you are equal to them in spiritual power and spiritual ability? Do you believe that those men, those people, have no spiritual advantage over you? Moses has no spiritual advantage over you. He murdered a guy. I mean, come on. David has no spiritual advantage. The Apostle Paul has no spiritual advantage. Joan of Arc has no spiritual advantage. George Washington, no spiritual advantage. Martin Luther King Jr., Billy Graham, they have no spiritual advantage over you. None. But we believe, well, there's, you know, they're God, they were favorites of God. No, they simply took God at his word and acted audaciously to believe that they could change their world and their generation. They believed it. And they marched out and they did it because they accepted that as their identity. James 5.17, Elijah was a man just like us. The stepbrother of Jesus 
says the great prophet Elijah was a man just like you and me. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. So, listen. God doesn't show favorites. It's just some people are willing to step out when they don't see any ground beneath them and believe for something and act audaciously because they know the relationship with the Father, and their Father will make the sun stand still if they have the faith enough to step out and to do it. Acts 10.34, then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. Peter, the one that walked with Jesus, he goes, now in the book of Acts, after the Holy Spirit had fallen in Acts chapter 2, he goes, now I realize that God does not play favorites. That what he's done for one person, he will do for you. That we can step out and see God move. Joshua acted in audacious faith, trusting God. And he realized his purpose and asked God to show his glory. You can do the same thing. But will you do it? Or will you continue to live with excuses because you still act like and think like you live under sin and death? When God says, no, 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 I've separated you from that origin. I've called you over here. So wherever your faith is, wherever your faith is, begin to work it. Faith is like a muscle. You have to exercise and work it for it to grow. Is there an identity crisis if you're a Christian and following Jesus? Absolutely not. None. None question is, will you step up and walk into it? Will you walk into your destiny and walk into your purpose? That's my challenge to you. Will you step into your destiny and your purpose with audacious faith, believing that you are completely forgiven and free from shame and condemnation? That's my challenge for you for 2019. Will you start living your life that way and getting serious with it? Let's stand up this morning. And we're going to repeat these first two confessions. These first two confessions this morning, repeat after me. I am fully forgiven and free from all shame and condemnation. Number two, I act in audacious faith to change the world and my generation. You are a world changer. Now, whether you decide to act like it and live like it is up to you. But you you need to know that your big brother, Jesus, sees you as a world changer. And so does God. Are you going to walk in it? Or are you going to continue to live under the old rules of the old house? I kind of like the new rules in the new house, don't you? I do, for sure. Listen, if you're here this morning, and... Maybe you're still living under the old house. You've never made Jesus the Lord of your life. Or maybe you've never said, Jesus, take control of my life. I want you to have it. If you've never done that and asked him to forgive you of your sins and remove you from your natural origin to the new place, I want to invite you to do that today. So if I can get Steve and Bonnie to come down here and if I can get... Um, if I could ask Lynn and Jesse to come down on this side. And if you're here this morning, maybe this morning, maybe you've already made that decision to follow Jesus, but maybe you've just kind of slipped out of the saddle, so to speak. And maybe your life is, 
you believe in God, you believe in Jesus, you just haven't been living it like you know you should and you wanna rededicate your life and just say, Jesus, I'm putting my life back into your hands. I want to live like I belong in the new house under the new rules. If that's you, I wanna invite you to come forward as well. And if you need a prayer for anything else as we close out and so I want you to come forward because I believe that you are gonna change your world and your generation, that you don't have to live with shame and condemnation. You are set free from whatever has held you back.